my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you happen to be uh, brand new or newish, uh, welcome to our, to our church. We are in an um, uh, early summer sermon series right now called Open Mic. We're going to wrap it up next week, actually, and then go into a, another sermon series in the book of 2 Timothy, which will take us through the rest of the summer, in case you're wondering what's next. But uh, these open mic times that we uh, have a precedent for as a church uh, are times just for us to preach on what we want. As pastors, but we also have folded in kind of a big questions element too, where we uh, asked you all uh, several weeks ago to supply us some questions about theology or our uh, church's vision and values, maybe, or anything really on your mind and heart, uh, in the hopes that we could make a sermon out of one or two of these things. And uh, so, thank you for contributing, those of you who did. Uh, Today is going to be one of those big questions, uh, like we I think have been now for in, in a few weeks. I don't think Jesse next week, one of our lay lay pastors who's going to preach. I don't think his is going to be um, a big question. So it might be the last one of these. But um, the question we got, so without any kind of further ado here, uh, was can you preach a sermon on Exodus 4, 24 to 26? So very specific. I guess the answer is I can try. Uh, take my best crack at it. Um, but the passage uh, is um, reads as this, if you um, have never read it before. Uh, Exodus 4, 24 to 26 says, At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. All right, so clear as mud, right? Um, this is actually Peter this morning said, it was so easy to pick songs to, to go with this text of this week. Um, I don't know if any of the old hymns have ever, um, where's Peter. No, Peter? Oh, he's gone. Okay, he's usually here for second service. But uh, I don't think any of the old hymns ever touched this, or maybe even the modern Christian stuff either. But um, So, in fact, if I were to reframe the question a bit, I think I, I read this into the question, like, what in the world is basically the question is going on here, so help. Uh, or, I think this was also part of it, um, it seems like Jesus might be in there somewhere, I'm just not sure where. So I think uh, the question was kind of a, can you preach this passage from a Christ-centered perspective? Um, so that's what we're going to do today. But kind of um, in that vein uh, and, and off of that as a starting point, a few remarks just about interpretation in general, especially if this is uh, maybe a new concept for, uh, for you. But even for me this week, um, I was thinking, um, what I like about interpreting Bible stories like this is that they confound human-based approaches to understanding them. Uh, so what I mean by that is, you know, whether uh, historical or literary, or moral, um, asking what a passage means by way of those types of starting points, they just don't crack the shell to stories like this. They don't do enough. Um, That's not to say that they're altogether unuseful, but they're often like trying to scoop up lake water with a colander. They're just not the best tool to use. Um, And so put differently, reading the Bible like we would The Catcher in the Rye, or an American history textbook, that maybe you read in high school, or reading the Bible like we would Shakespeare just doesn't work. Uh, We need something else other than us and our wisdom, other than how we might read other kinds of books to understand. We need to read, in other words, by grace or by the veil-lifting revelation of Jesus Christ, not by the strategies of man. So I know this is a newer concept to some of you. If If it's a refresher or a reminder, great, please 
be reminded and be refreshed in that. If it's brand new, it might be a little bit up here still, but just hang tight. I'll show you what I mean as we go. But it's very easy to only do Bible study from these perspectives. And when we do that, we will never understand it right. We, we just won't. Primarily because the Bible doesn't use these perspectives to read itself. Uh, you never see the apostles ask these kinds of questions, in other words, about the Old Testament when they, when they apply it. Instead, they're asking um, larger scale questions about how these smaller puzzle pieces play a part in the mosaic or the greater jigsaw puzzle, how they help to tell their broader story that pertains to Christ and ultimately him crucified. So I would say these are the better approaches, especially to a foggy, almost impossible to understand story like this, um, uh, would be questions like this. Uh, the Christological perspective or the Christ-centered perspective, which would ask the question, where is Jesus in this story? And how does that help us understand what's going on? Or the biblical theological perspective, which is similar, which would ask something like, how does the rest of the Bible help us understand this story? Um, because the different parts of the Bible, like I was just referring to, have an echo to them. There is a common rhythm. They don't stand alone. Uh, the Bible even says in Colossians 1 that all things exist for Jesus' sake. And all things includes Exodus 4. So if we're to apply the logic of Scripture itself, we have to conclude that what we just read in Exodus 4, 24 to 26 about Moses and Zipporah and foreskins and flint knives and blood and God relenting from killing Moses, that all somehow has to do with Jesus. Uh, if, if we don't approach Scripture that way, we're just simply not upholding uh, the, the teaching of the New Testament itself on hermeneutics, which is a word that just means interpretation of the Bible. Uh, we're, we're foregoing it. We're, we're acquiescing. We're, we're backing off. Or worse, we're trusting in our, what we think might be better approaches to understanding, and we're kind of foregoing what the Bible is saying. My revelation in Jesus is the clarifying agent. What, it, it's, it's like you have to read the Bible on my terms, God is saying, or else... Um, we, uh, we, we won't understand. All right, so what I want, with all that said, there's a ton more to say about that, but hopefully that gives you a, a bit of a, a starting point, essentially, as to where I'm going to go today, but um, even more broadly, just how to read the Bible. Um, what I want to do is preach this passage like I would if we were in a series on Exodus, which we've never done, but we'd like to someday, so maybe we'll, we'll be back here, who knows, in a few years. But um, the title is Flint Knives, Foreskins, and Jesus. Uh, and I think that the, the best way to go about this, uh, like, you know, like many sermons maybe, especially narrative, would be to outline it by way of problem, solution, and twist. So if you like to follow along, there's a sermon inserted in your worship folders, but that's just kind of getting you heads up where we're going. Problem, solution, and twist. And even as you just hear that, if you've, if you've read parts of the Bible even before, maybe just that framework sounds like the Bible. It sounds like how the whole story arc of Scripture is, like any good story, is laid out, but especially with that twist at the end of how exactly is God going to solve the problem of our sin and our being distanced from him. All right, so let's go back to the first section, which is the problem. Verse 24, again, the, the little mini story here starts by saying, at a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. So this all takes place before the Exodus event proper. This is kind of the early part of this book where the, the early Moses narratives occur, where the burning, the burning bush story, but before that, his birth narrative, uh, his marriage uh, narrative, uh, his rejection narrative, when the, the, 
uh, Israelite people reject Moses initially, and he runs off to Midian and marries Zipporah, uh, as we read, sort of read about here. Um, those kind of stories are, are the first part, the first few chapters, really, of Exodus. And within that story, we come across this weird thing out of left field, where all of a sudden they just happen to be at this inn or this lodging place, and the Lord met Moses there, but it was, it was, it was in a problem way or a, a dark way. Uh, the, the Lord was about to kill him. And even there, that might be kind of, uh, you know, um, odd or even might feel contradictory to what we read about elsewhere in Scripture, whether we're thinking, you know, about God as a loving being or a compassionate, patient one, which he is, or even like elsewhere in Moses' life, it says in the Bible that God spoke to Moses like a friend. And so what's going on here? If he talks to Moses like a friend, why here is he wanting to kill him? And we're supposed to see early in the story that there's these different ways that God is relating to people. You know, God is not a split personality. He doesn't change. He's not um, flippant. He, uh, he, in fact, never changes, according to the Bible itself. We know that God never changes. But he does uh, covenant differently at different parts in history with people. And those take different kinds of shape. And we're supposed to see that even back here in the Old Testament proper. And I'll get to some of that a little bit later today um, as well. But back to the question uh, of why is this the case? Why is God relating to Moses in this way, in this story? The answer is because Moses didn't circumcise his son. So at this point in biblical history, God had commanded the people of Israel to keep a law or a tenet of circumcision, where all the boys would be circumcised when they were eight days old. It was essentially a mark of being in covenant with God, but Moses failed to do it. We don't know why exactly, but it probably had to do with him marrying a non-Israelite, uh, living in Midian. And so uh, at this point in his life, he is geographically and kind of maritally distanced from God and distanced from circumcision, you could say. Uh, some actually think it was Zipporah at first who resisted circumcision for her son, not being an Israelite herself. Uh, we don't know uh, which it is, but either way, Moses is held responsible for the breach and the consequence is death. All right, so now this might seem uh, harsh at first glance, um, but if you've read the Old Testament before, you, you likely need little convincing that sin or this rote inability that human beings have to obey or trust in God comes with consequences, many times immediate and many times unpleasant. So at second glance, uh, it's actually less harsh, um, or at, le at least less unprecedented uh, than we might initially think. Especially when we remember, and I'll add a couple of things here, uh, especially when we remember that Moses and Zipporah, by not circumcising their son, by not uh, keeping God's law, were saying with their lack of obedience, I know more than you do, God. My ways are more wise. I have it more figured out. That's, this is essentially Exodus 4, you can almost say the whole Bible in one sense, at least these kinds of stories. But Exodus 4 is a story about the worst kind of sin, pride. Uh, in fact, at this point in the story, when you look at it that way, um, taking circumcision itself off of the table and just putting pride, arrogance, uh, disbelief, um, you know, self-aggrandizement or whatever, uh, on the table, we might ask the question as readers, why am I still alive? That's actually a very appropriate question sometimes to ask when you see this. It's sort of like this one little breach, 
this one little break of a seemingly arbitrary law, and it's right for God to kill, uh, to, to ex- enact justice and, and kill. Um, why, why am I still breathing? I've done that a thousand times in my life. I've thought too highly of myself. I've broken God's commandments uh, uh, all the time. So why am I still here? Now, that tension is very appropriate to feel in the story. The Bible's full of these tensions and almost seemingly unfairnesses and injustices where we're like, well, wait a minute. If that happened there, why am I, why am I still breathing? Um, hold that thought if you, if you have that. It's, uh, we'll, we'll kind of resolve that later. Um, but digging deeper... Uh, also remember that Moses and Zipporah here were kind of being loose and cavalier with what circumcision symbolized, and, which was, at least in part, the removal of the flesh of sin. So circumcision removed the flesh from, uh, from uh, eight-year-old boys, but it symbolized this broader idea of the removal of what flesh symbolized, which was sin. And so to forego circumcision was to forego one of the signs of salvation for the Old Testament people of God, which, again, is akin to rejecting God himself and his offer of salvation. It's saying, God, I don't want your help. I don't need you, uh, and and things like that. So keep those things in mind, too, especially if you come at this from kind of a uh, harshness angle. It actually actually, um, isn't. Um, I will add this, though, too, then, kind of off of those two things. God, God is not an aimless killer, He's not, he's not an aimless killer of people who accidentally break the most arbitrary of rules. He is good and just and holy, and he cannot coexist with sin. And he is working out, simply, the conditions of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, which uh, were, do this thing, obey this commandment, or there will be relational and physical consequences of some kind. It's one of the um, most important things to understand about the Bible is there's two testaments. And the first one had stipulations that were conditional, uh, explicitly so, all littered throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Do this thing, obey this thing, uh, abstain from this, uh, or else there will will be consequences, uh, a a removal from the camp of Israel, or exile, or, or worse, death. Uh, these are the things that kind of litter the pages of the Old Testament that Israel becomes this microcosm of, of the world. Like, if we were there, we'd be the same, but they constantly can't keep it. And Moses, then, is the microcosm of Israel. And so Moses here, then, is a picture of the law comes in, a commandment comes in, and people don't do it. God says, do this, people go the other way. Uh, remember when God spoke to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh? What does he do? Instantly goes the other way, like full 180. Uh, when God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of this one fruit, what do they instantly do? It's, it's, just, it's everywhere, whether it's, whether it's a story of an individual or a family or a nation. When the law comes in, it drives a wedge. It, it, it doesn't enact perfect obedience and, and right all wrongs. It actually uh, makes the problem worse. And so Exodus 4, then, is a story about the severity of the Old Testament law. It's a story about the waywardness of the human heart and what conditionality does to our relationship with God, which, you know, spoiler alert, it's, it's not a good thing, like we were just saying before. So Romans 5.20 in the New Testament says the law, then God's commandments, including the Ten Commandments and so forth, there are hundreds of them in the Old Testament, but it was brought in so that the trespass might increase. It wasn't the only thing the law did in the Old Testament. There are different, things, different purposes it served. But one big thing is it came in to make the problem worse, to be a mirror, to show dirt on our face, 
uh, so that we would see that we can't keep it and we would be driven ahead to, to a different solution altogether other than morality, uh, namely Christ. Um, Galatians 3 also, why then was the law given at all? And so, you know, Paul is kind of rhetorically asking here, uh, if it's all about Jesus, well, why did God spin his wheels in the mud? Why, why, did he, why did he give the law at all? And the answer is, it was given alongside the promise of Christ, so not the same thing, they're not blended. They run concurrent, but they're different. Alongside the promise to show people their sins. All right, and many other places we could look. These are kind of two really important verses, though, to... Um, Hang your hat on and know if you don't know these things. This is how the Bible talks about itself. All right, so if it kind of helps here, also think, I, I think too, like on a human level, um, you know, w- when you think about high expectations in a relationship, so especially in marriage, but it could be friendship, it could be uh, coworkers, when you think about what a high, like super high expectations do to a marriage, for example, it's never really a good thing. Right? Not that there's never expectations of some kind in a relationship at all, but like high expectations that actually can never fully be kept leads to dis- disappointment and disillusionment. That's why we say to all the premarrieds going through counseling here, like, do not worship your spouse. They will let you down. They make terrible saviors. Um, in, in the same way, like high expectations for marriage or relationship will always disappoint. It's a, it, disappoint. It's the same with God. The, the high expectations, uh, Allah, the law, create um, a disruption. It, it creates a wedge. It, it's not good for our relationship with God to have these laws. They, they cannot be kept. We always go the other way. And even if physically we're keeping them well, uh, inside our heart we're not, and that's just as bad. And so we're back, to, we're back to square one. And the hamster wheel keeps going and going and going and going, and we exhaust ourselves religiously. I mean, this is the story of Israel, the story of humanity, the story of Moses here in Exodus 4. It's uh, what we need to constantly remember uh, as we um, come to terms with the story of the Bible. All right, so the solution then, uh, if, if, these, if the law came in and uh, if, if um, the, the problem itself of sin drives us forward to a solution, you see it in Exodus 4 actually um, as well. And I think you see it... Um, from the perspective of the first two words, actually, of verse 25, which is, but Zipporah. So Moses was in trouble. Moses had sinned. Moses was going to die. But Zipporah is going to do something to help him. That's what Exodus 4 is about. It's a hint of grace. It's, it's another instance in which the chorus of Scripture sings to us that salvation is 100% from outside of us, not just at the moment of conversion, but every day of our Christian lives. It reminded me of Ephesians 2, 1-5, which says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. All right, here's the big thing then. Notice verse 4. The but God contrast to verses 1 to 3 
Um, Though we were walking around like zombies in our sin, though we were holding hands with the devil and spewing hatred back in God's face, God did something to save us. He made us alive with Christ by his grace, by the undeserved merit that that he gave to us. So like, even just linguistically here, you see this this, uh, contrasting conjunction, right, in the word but. It's just a clear shift It's though this was you, though it was hopeless, though you were dead, though you were sons of the devil, now God has come in to do something. He has made you sons of him. He has adopted you into his family. He has made you alive. You were dead, now you're alive. But the point is, God has done it, and it's from outside of us, not sort of drawn out from from within. So uh, in Moses' case then, uh, Zipporah, is the God figure. Or just for us as readers, as we read this story, Zipporah is a type of God figure, a type of God. She's a God figure. Um, That salvation, this hope that salvation was going to come from outside of us one day. Not the law saying it's from within you if you just do enough, but from without. Um, By God beckoning us with his love and grace and doing something apart from the works of our hands uh, to save. So Zipporah is... I would say she is the but God in this story, not Moses. She is the qualification to Moses' impossible spiritual predicament. Zipporah is the hope. And so in the same way, I would say um, here to all of us that salvation is not through us self-harming in some way. It is not uh, through our... uh, Proving of our devotion through rigorous forms of self-denial or getting uh, like a second chance to get it right. Uh, but salvation is in the gracious work of the hands of another. Never forget it. It's through the hope that someone else is looking out for us, even God himself. All right? And yet, when we keep reading the story, there's, we find that there's more specificity and weirdness Uh, but specificity to how salvation occurs. Again, in a microcosm way in Exodus 4, in a macro way uh, in the New Testament. Uh, And connecting those things are extremely important. Um, I'll I'll say this too. I I say this a lot here, but it's very important. The Bible is always interested in the how, not just the what. And so as Christians, we don't put our hope in God generically, We're not just deists. We don't believe that there is a benevolent God out there who will somehow do something good for us in the future. And um, that's not, you know, necessarily a million miles off or anything, but that's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is we put our hope in God specifically, not generically. Our hope is very specific. It's honed in on God's Son. And it's honed in on what God's Son does in the world. Uh, It's not just in the existence of God. Uh, it's, uh, it's much more specific uh, because the Bible's more specific, because Jesus has a name, because his mission was very pointed. It wasn't just like broadly scattering seeds and we'll see what sticks. It was setting of his face towards Jerusalem. It was like he was uh, driven to go to die, uh, to die for our sins. And that's the Christian hope as we put our hope in one who became like us in order to die in our place. And if we don't do that, we're not Christian. We, 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 are, we simply aren't. We're maybe spiritual. We might know a couple things about the Bible. But if we don't put our trust in God's ultimate olive branch and saying, this is my love for you. This is my bridge. 
this is my offer, this is my peace I give you, and we cling to it, um, we're at best acknowledging some information. We're not receiving that, um, spec- that specific form of revelation and salvation into our lives. All right, so with all that said, this third section is more about the twist. Uh, verse 25, the, the full verse says, but Zipporah not just did something, remember that's generic, but specifically Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. And so um, it's weird, right? It's almost comical. Like you're like, I, you wouldn't even know, like does she even know what she's doing? You know, how does she even know that God was going to kill him? Um, is this something she's like, bemoaning Moses's, you know, stubbornness and stupidity or something. Oh, there Moses goes again. I'm always cleaning up his messes or whatever. Like, let your imagination run wild, I guess. We don't know. Uh, But it was probably, you know, um, there's probably something like that, but it's not the most important thing. The important thing is her actions and what she does. So the twist here, and I have a few facets to this, so kind of hang with me. There's three different ways to look then at seeing the specificity of Christ's crucifixion, his suffering in this passage. They're all from the same diamond. They're all from this story. But you got you to twist it a bit in the light to see different angles and see that Christ is fulfilling all of this. Like, remember when I quoted from Colossians 1 before, that all things exist for the sake of Jesus? Like, all things were made for him? Well, this is, what, this is what we're doing. It's not always easy to see that in everything in life or scripture, but um, this is what we're going to do with even just this verse here. Um, so three things. The first is, uh, aspect on the twist, is that salvation came not just at the hands of another, but at the suffering or bloodshedding of another, even an innocent person. So in Exodus 4's case, it's the unnamed son of Moses who shed his blood, via circumcision, but in the greater biblical story's case, it's the named Son of God, Jesus Christ, the true Son who innocently shed his blood on the cross for our salvation and our deliverance. Um, Even if, like, this is the only verse you ever read in the Bible, which would be kind of weird, I guess, but I guess hypothetically that could happen. This is the first, like, only only, um, verse you knew, you would say, the Bible seems to care a lot about blood. And yes, it does. It's deeply, deeply, deeply important. And the reason is because of Christ. Circumcision is just a whisper or a glimpse. Yes, there's blood in this story. There's blood in Zipporah saying, you know, calling her husband a bridegroom of blood. Like that was his, you know, subtitle or something. Um, But the reason why it's so important in the Bible is for the sake of the one who became bloody for us, for you and me. It's to say that God, the God of the Bible, doesn't ask you to bleed for him like every other world religion does. The God of the Bible says, I will bleed for you. Believe in that. Trust in that. Receive the news of that into your life, and that's what makes you saved. That's it. It doesn't matter what you've done what you're doing or what you will do because my salvation's completely apart from all of that. It's way over here. It's outside of you. And then it comes your direction and becomes one with you. Um, it, 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 it's, it's like a wedding. That's why he's called the bridegroom here. Kind of getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to that. All right? So now in one sense, I think like when you hear this, um, 
I, you know, I think it like speaks to a couple of things. One, um, you know, it, uh, at least bunny trails. Like it might make you think, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, even in, in so broadly with Jesus, but like in, in, in Exodus 4, is it fair that Moses' son suffered pain and bled for Moses' sin? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Of course it's not fair. But gospel and fairness are not wedded. Like gospel and fa- love and fairness don't go together uh, most times in, in life. Um, I remember when my kids were younger, we, we would say that sometimes. Uh, Aletha and I would say that just like, this, in this home, we don't want fairness to be our ultimate mantra. We want love to be. And when you make love the ultimate mantra of your life or your home, you just can't live by fairness because love and fairness are at odds because love's not concerned with retribution or keeping score, but it's, with, it's, it's principally concerned with protection and bullet-taking at, at all costs. And I, and I think this is a good thing for us to know uh, on a human level, human to human, Christian to Christian. This can, this should, that should shape our relationships uh, or can do that. But this is not ultimately about us. It's about God and the love that he shows. He's not keeping score with you. Um, I read the other day um, someone just say, grace, the feeling of grace is like looking over your shoulder and realizing no one's chasing you. That's what it feels like. No one's back there. There's no one chasing you anymore. There's no list. No one's keeping score. Uh, no one's going to cancel you and expose all your sins online tomorrow. Uh, no one's going to hack your computer to that end. Uh, I mean, with God, you know. That may happen in life, right? But, like, with God, it's not. He's a sin coverer. So I, I think that this is, this is why grace is so important, why positioning love against fairness, because fairness is more about works. You get what you put in. Just obey God and life will be better. If you just pray more, all your problems will go away. If you just obey the Ten Commandments, those are your life hacks for life, and God wants you to have life hacks, and so do them and life will get better. That's, that's a conditionalized, that's an if-then. Any kind of if-then in Christianity, jettison it. Uh, th- there are very few, if any, if-thens uh, in, 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 in the New Testament, or uh, and even when they're there, it's not... It's not conditionalized, ultimately, uh, with the law. And so it's ultimately about the, the if-then that pertains to God. If God dies for your sins, then you'll be saved. He takes on the if-then, ultimately. Okay? That's the first kind of angle, to, to, to further twist the diamond and see Christ um, a little more allegorically in this passage. Um, I'll actually quote uh, Augustine in the 4th century, who wrote on Exodus 4 and said, um, Christ was the rock... Whence was formed the stony blade for the circumcision? You can tell I didn't write that because it says whence. Uh, but Christ was the rock. When, this is how, this is how um, uh, flint knives were formed. Flint's a kind of rock. A rock had to be harmed and cut to make this kind of single-pieced knife, uh, one-piece knife. And from that, the circumcision uh, happened. So uh, what Augustine's doing is he's saying he's drawing from this larger theme of the Bible which sees Christ as the rock of ages who was cleft and cut. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says this when he refers to the story where Moses struck the rock saying the rock actually was Christ ahead of time. What Augustine's doing is drawing from that imagery and saying Christ is the rock here as well who was harmed to form the instrument that did the circumcision that enabled Moses to be saved. 
Does that make sense? It's sort of like, if you kind of reverse engineer this thing, it's like if that flint knife wasn't made, if that rock wasn't harmed, downstream of that, Moses wasn't saved. He's dead. And so a rock had to be harmed in order for Moses to be saved. That's, that's Augustine's way of like, thinking biblically, theologically, and I think he's right. I think like using the rest of Scripture to read this passage, there's no such thing as a rock in the Bible that doesn't point to Christ somehow, especially harmed rocks or cleft rocks like we sing in one of our songs. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide uh, my, myself in thee. Um, all right, so, uh, so to add to this then, and a little bit of a, an aside because um, the, the passage puts circumcision kind of in parentheticals. Um, this might be new to you guys. I'll say a couple of things here on circumcision. Uh, it could be its own sermon, but just a couple of things that relate to this. Um, that the, what, in terms of what uh, circumcision symbolized, I kind of got at this before, but as an aside, this is why the New Testament doesn't require circumcision anymore. This is why in the New Testament, circumcision doesn't really mean anything anymore physically. But this is why it means everything spiritually. Uh, So the idea is by faith, when we believe in Jesus, the flesh of our sin is removed from our heart by the knife of Christ's sacrificial death. So this is why it gets confusing because in one sense, Moses' son, before he becomes a Christ figure, becomes an us figure because he's circumcised. You know, if you believe in Jesus, the, f- the flesh of sin of your heart has been removed by his death and resurrection when you, when you believed. And yet, the other side of this would be to say in Philippians 3.3 where Paul says to Christians who are male and female, uh, Christians who are Gentiles, uh, men who are not physically circumcised, uh, but who believe in Jesus, he says to them, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence, this is the key here, no confidence in the flesh. All right, so we also see that circumcision is about putting no confidence or trust in the flesh. That is our good or religious works. This is where it gets further confusing because flesh can be understood in both ways, as a picture of our sin or also as a picture of what we do, our works, our good works, uh, in fact. And so, to be circumcised, this is the point, uh, off of Philippians 3. To be circumcised spiritually is to believe in Jesus, but it is to move on from the law and from trusting in our works and the works of our hands to save us. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what it means to be truly circumcised. We it's not just the removal of sin, it's the removal of trust in what we do. The removal of trust in the works of our hands and what we've accomplished in life and our obedience. See, to be a Christian, you have to move on from that. Uh, of course, we don't never do that perfectly, and that's not what, that's not what God is asking. But we, we come to terms with this. We trust in Jesus alone, but confidence in him, not in us. And that's why all Christians, male or female, uh, what, if we're physically circumcised or not, as, as men, it doesn't matter anymore. That was just a symbol before. The reality is Christ. And if we believe in Jesus, we have not trusted in our good works, and we never do the rest of our lives uh, as, we, as we grow in, in the gospel. That is our mark by faith in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and not our calloused ones. All right, so it's a little bit of an aside, but I just want to address like, how the Bible thinks of circumcision in a New Testament way. And some of that is sort of foreseen, 
in Exodus 4. Some of that is a little bit of an aside, but um, in case you were ever wondering, that's a quick, very quick uh, kind of Cliff Notes version there. But um, All right, so but lastly, uh, one uh, last thing here to further one more twist on that diamond uh, in the light and to look at another facet in terms of where Christ is um, in Exodus 4. I think that we need to remember that the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, um, link Jesus and Moses a ton. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.15, I believe it is, uh, is one of the more um, explicit prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament where Moses says, look for another one like me from among your brothers, uh, speaking ultimately of Christ. Uh, but the New Testament, too, in the book of Hebrews, there's a ton of this. So in other words, Moses, in some ways, typifies and foreshadows Jesus. That's one of the reasons why he exists. Um, And so when we look at this story through that lens, um, I would put it this way. Jesus is also the true Moses whose feet were bloodied on the cross. Uh, He is the true bridegroom of blood. Uh, So then Zipporah's words become our confession. Uh, We say to Jesus, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. You are a groom by way of blood. You have rescued me by way of blood, even your own blood. Though my feet were swift to shed blood, Romans 3.15 says about me and and all humanity, your feet were nail-pierced and became bloody for me. So Moses then, in a sense, is is a picture that one day a prophet would come who would have his feet bloodied. Um, And it's through that that salvation and exodus and deliverance and escape uh, from the things that really matter in life, like our sin and uh, dark angels and being distanced from God, all of that. Uh, even from God's wrath, we see in this passage as well, um, and how God wants to kill Moses, but then it doesn't happen because blood comes in the middle. All of that together uh, is hope that a prophet, though, is going to come who would have his feet bloodied or nail-pierced, and through that, true exodus and true escape uh, will, will come. And so I'll, I'll say this then to, to close. I think that's maybe the ultimate twist. If there's one more turn of that diamond here, um, the ultimate twist to this, even scandal, you could say, is that like Moses, Jesus would come to place himself under the crosshairs of God the Father. He would take on our sin. Um, if you, We actually sang about this today in one of the songs where it says, um, or sings about, the wrath of God being satisfied. Um, To some of you, this is not new theology. To some of you, it might be. But this idea that one of the things that Jesus was doing on the cross was satisfying a debt, but he was also deterring the wrath of God away from us. Um, And so when the apostles write about this, you might ask, where are they getting that theology? Where's that coming from in the Bible? And the answer is, in part, here. It's stories like this, where God is set out to rightly and justly in his holiness and and goodness because he's warring against evil, and we want that kind of God to exist. Uh, He's going to kill Moses, but what happens in between is a Christ-embodying act, a bloody act of a a true son, but also a prophet that would come to, quote, uh, allow God to leave us alone. Uh, as, as Exodus 4 said. We need this. Um, this is the darkness that Jesus takes on. That's why I say the final twist here is that Jesus became the enemy in the story. Jesus became the antagonist. He became Moses. He became the guy uh, who took on the killing 
Uh, Isaiah 53 says it was, it was the Lord's will to crush him, speaking of Jesus. Um, he willingly went to the cross to take on all of that darkness. So when we read stories like this, you don't have to worry about making one mistake and then think, oh, is God out going to get me? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many people have thought that at some point in your life? Probably all of you, maybe a hundred times or a thousand. Like, even when we actually think those words, we think that God is kind of like that. Like, if I just, you know, like uh, Taylor Lund said last week when he preached, like, if you live in any way, like, you have X's on your calendar for good or bad days, and you start counting your spiritual life as though if you don't do this or do this, that you're, you're doing better as a Christian, um, how is that not, you know, thinking the opposite of this? How is that not thinking in a works-based way? How is that not thinking in a law-based or conditionalized way? It is. And so Scripture invites us away from that wholesale into a, a, a marriage to the bridegroom of blood, the one who wedded us to himself by his act of self-sacrifice. Um, and so that's the final twist here, is that Jesus, as the New Testament says, became sin on the cross. Do you know that? Like, the Son of God became your sin somehow. Uh, it's not you anymore. It's not in you. Uh, he became your sin, was crucified in your place, took the wrath of God, took all the dark, darkness upon himself, including the darknesses of these kinds of stories, and, 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 and solved our problem. Uh, he, he took on our guilty status so we can be let alone. Um, that your, your salvation came at the highest of costs. Never forget that. Uh, it, it's, it, was, it was a price paid willingly in love by God the Father and God the Son and now pressed into our dead hearts by God the Spirit. This is what Exodus 4 is, is really about. Whether it's Zipporah, Moses' son, a flint knife, blood, or Moses himself, all of those are about Jesus. All of those point to him. It's not about you. There's no moral lesson here of, well, you guys better circumcise your boys or you're going to be killed, right? And most of you probably didn't need to hear that, but you should ask that as a reader. Like, what changed? Or what's the story really about? If it's not a moral lesson, what's it about? And the answer is it's about the gospel ahead of time. It's about the Old Testament that's going to give way to a New Testament. Both Testaments are in this passage. The conditionalized one, the old law, that brought death and a wedge between us and God, giving way to a covenant of blood, uh, one who would be nail-pierced for us, and through that alone would save us. Those are different. One is works, one is grace. Oil and water, you, you, you can't mix it. And so Christ crucified, Jesus, the Son of God, the ultimate descendant of Moses, you could say, in a way, the ultimate and true and better Zipporah, the, the rock that was cleft and cut to form the knife that, uh, led to salvation, the, the, the blood, um, the prophet, Moses. I mean, again, it's, it's all about him, not about you. It's about what God willingly spent in love to save you from your sins. Believe, and you'll be saved. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, this, this passage, uh, albeit super cloudy uh, and difficult. We thank you um, for uh, solving the cloudiness of scripture by way of your son and also solving the haziness and cloudiness of our uh, sinful souls as well. Uh, it's, it's the same thing. To say that you are the revelation, you're the mystery solver, as the New Testament says, is to say that you solve mysteries in scripture like this. No other human strategy 
of interpreting the Bible will ever work except asking the question, where is Jesus here? Because it's all about you. So teach us in those ways. Grow us in those ways. Help us to not just leave our our works for the sake of your grace, but to leave our own interpretational strategies for the sake of a grace-centered, Christ-centered reading of of the Bible um, and uh, help us to grow in that way as a church and as individuals. But uh, aside from that, though, God, ultimately we just thank you for your word that this Exodus 4 is a promise, that there's a but God coming. There is a but God is going to do something gracious, not to, not to crush us, uh, but to be crushed for us, not to kill us, but to be killed by sinful men in our place on a cross. And it's through that that we have a New Testament. We have a covenant with you based on your love, not based on our moral efforts. And, and from there, we have, we have life. We have hope. Um, we can think less of ourselves and more of you and others and, and just not worry anymore. And I, I pray for everyone here, wherever they're at, that, that some kind of takeaway today would be relief, that grace would bring relief, and um, that you would help us to believe. In Christ we pray. Amen.